Hola, yo soy Margarita y estás escuchando Limehouse Podcast. This is Paddy Ashdown and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. What a good name that is. Hi, I'm Tom Brake and this is the Limehouse Podcast. Hello, this is Nick Clegg and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Because I'm not persuaded by the case for war. This is what positive politics can do. Hello, is this thing on? Hello? Okay, hello guys. Welcome back to the Limehouse podcast. How have you been? How are you doing? How's your week been? It does mean a lot to me. I want to know how your week has been, you know, because it's winter now. We've got to stick together. Winter's coming. It's getting cold. Put an extra scarf around that lovely neck of yours and that head, that head needs to stay warm because otherwise you get stupid cold thoughts like let's get the hell out of here and fly away stay stay with me don't leave we need to stay together through this winter oh my god i sound like i'm having a breakdown anyway what is coming up this week on the limehouse podcast we've got michael heseltine for you it's lord michael heseltine time time and I'm looking forward to it because it was one of the weirdest, genuinely, hand-on-hot, weirdest times of my life. When I first went to Port Carlis House, like under a year ago now, but it seems like five, I, w- I was reasonably intimidated. You know, all the security you have to go through, general s- scale of the place, and bearing in mind how much, you know, how much shit goes down in the, in, in Port Carlos House is unbelievable. So Port Carlos House, obviously, is where all the uh, MPs have their offices and do all their orificing. So Michael Heseltine, had recently, he's, he's recently moved to this new office block in Victoria for his, uh, for his new uh, publishing company, whatever it is. And I'm telling you, man, this office block, wow, really sinister people, like staring at me. It wasn't until I realised that I, I had my sort of tweed jacket on I love animals uh, badges on them there's probably a reason for their for their glare but fair enough but so anyway you know there, there's a little old me walking around going hey you know where's where's Michael's office where's Michael Heseltine's office and uh, yeah got shown there fantastic led in met his lovely PA lovely woman got in there and he was just sat there at his desk I was like, shit you know shook my hand in total silence okay fine there's lord lord Hesseltine shaking his hand in total silence that's normal isn't it i mean that's normal yeah yeah and then they just spent literally three minutes in total silence on his phone whilst I, I sat down feeling like it was like an episode of extras or something and yeah before the i i, I start this interview which i'm just going to press play on pretty soon in the next couple of minutes uh, I started the interview by just trying to just chat shit, you know, just trying to... Hey, how you doing, Michael? Hey, hey, what's up with the weather? Isn't it crazy? And like, oh, yeah, what's your favourite book? And I don't know, God, isn't Victoria crazy now? I remember when it was no modern buildings and isn't it all this development? Isn't it mad? And every single thing, he looked at me like I was... He looked at me like I was not... He didn't look down on me or anything like that, but he just looked at me like, are you all right, mate? Like, what what's going on here? And it wasn't until maybe halfway through the interview, or maybe even five, a couple of minutes in, I realised, oh yeah, he thinks I'm a professional journalist or something. Like I'm, I don't know, like I know what I'm doing. Oh, oh, I, I see. No, Michael, this is kind of like a, a, a casual chit-chat kind of show where we all just shoot the shit and... 
Yikes. So, but he gave me some really, you know, good fodder uh, in the middle towards the end or whatever. To start with, it, it's a bit cagey, you know, because he, I, it, I cannot tell you how funny it was for me to be sat there to, to trying to just break the ice and effectively just sounding like a complete tool, like a total novice, which I am. Fine, I don't care. That's fine. That's who I am. I, I kind of love that. But it was so funny. In my head, I thought he was just going to be lovely, like, oh, wonderful to see you, dear boy. Here, sit down. Here's a bit of my grandchild. Oh, yes, her name's Doreen or something. And I'd go, oh, lovely picture. Hey, Michael, how you know? And we just hit it off. In my head, it was going to be like me and, and, uh, and old Ken Clark. In my head, when me and Clark sit down, it's going to be whiskeys and jazz till dawn. But in actual fact, it won't be. Will it? Will. No, it never will be. But for those, you know, of you who think that Michael is um, a, a, a very stiff upper lip kind of chap, he is in a way, but he's not. In a way, I've got some stuff out of him which is really sweet. You know, we speak about early childhood memories and, and the Second World War. We speak about his work that he did in Liverpool to regenerate the city. And of course, we talk about Brexit. That's unavoidable. And uh, and uh, and his, you know, some of his, his points of view on that saga. That is Brexit. Yeah, on that note, I suppose I'll just, just press play and, and see what you guys think of it. I hope you enjoy it. And, and if you do, uh, I don't know, we could have some chat on, on Twitter. Carry on that, that chat that we have. And that Twitter handle is Limehouse pod and yeah let's do it man let's get on that twitter and have some chat anyway here's the interview i hope you enjoy it pretty patel and boris johnson what are your thoughts around that sort of emerging storyline well i don't really have many thoughts um these are the incidentals of politics and uh, quite frankly when you uh, leave the hurly-burly of politics you tend to focus your mind on the big issues yeah. that will affect this country and future generations. Yeah, no, I mean, it must be, um, I don't know, slightly perplexing. I mean, given that Boris has sort of slipped up at time and time again, more and more recently, sort of, this is his next step, his next blunder, before, how much longer before he can possibly, I don't know, how, before he's given the push, I suppose? Well, that's a matter for the Prime Minister. Boris is a big figure. He's got a lot of uh, charisma. And um, he will be Boris whether he's in the government or out of the government. True, true. Yeah, and I suppose a lot of people love him for that and sort of loathe him at the same time. I don't know, really. But yeah, anyway, so I suppose it's sort of the main reason I'm here is, is Brexit and what have you. Um, and I suppose for me, I'd like to know your thoughts thoughts on the, the campaign of the, the referendum and how, how, it was, how it was set out, how it was the £350 million, for example, the, the £70 million Turks that were going to come over and, and uh, take all our jobs and leave Britain in ruins. How did that make you feel when those lies were being peddled? Well, they were lies, of course, but if you have a referendum with people with strong views, there will be the extremity of language and promise. Uh, that's a very powerful argument against referenda. Mm. I, I believe the referenda was a great mistake. 
and um, the campaign uh, indicated partly my reasons for being so hostile. Uh, in the end, Parliament is sovereign and uh, that's where the decisions should be and indeed will be taken on Brexit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I suppose David Davis has been quoted as saying um, referendum lower the, the terrible things anyway. If, if democracy is democracy, we should have a right to, to a second say on, on the final deal, or in and around that kind of phrasing. Um, how, how do you feel about a, a second referendum on the, on the deal, I would say? I think that would be um, a vehicle for ending Brexit. Personally, I would rather Parliament to do it. Yeah. Uh, either because this present Parliament became hostile or because in an election the issue was refought and a subsequent Parliament did it. Yeah. My, my preoccupation is ending Brexit, the means, uh, well, anything to hand. Hmm. And how do, you, how, can you, how do you feel that happening at the moment in Parliament between sort of uh, cross-party alliances, shall we say? I think that public opinion is the crucial factor. It is beginning to move. Mm -hmm. If you look at the polls, there's probably now a bigger majority against Brexit than the Brexit referendum itself secured. Yeah. But that, I think, will continue to um, happen. I think Brexit will become more and more unpopular as people realise yeah. what it's all about. Um, when that happens, the Labour Party will move and the present government will be left holding the baby. But then you've got to realise that the present government is supported by large numbers of people who are as opposed to Brexit as I am. Yeah. How long will they remain within the tribe, within mm. the loyalty to the party? Yes, I suppose so. And um, I suppose Anna Subri's spoken out a lot about how she's very frustrated with the opposition um, and how they've sort of gone hand in hand with the Brexit, uh, specifically in the way that the government had... They, Sort of gone with the government in, into the lobbies and what have you. How do you, how do you feel about Jeremy Jeremy Corbyn and the um, his kind of unwillingness to to be a real spokesperson for those people that did vote for him in the two thousand well in the recent general election for uh, opposing Brexit. The most interesting about Jeremy Corbyn is that he is now considered to be a potential prime minister. Uh, people of my generation could never have anticipated that. Uh, either his views would have been quite unacceptable to the Labour Party, let alone to the rest of us. Mm. Um, he was always a, a, someone to the extreme of his party, uh, arguing uh, causes for which there was virtually no support within his party. Uh, but such is the dynamic of Brexit that he is now seen as a potential Prime Minister. Yeah. It hasn't changed my views about him. No. No, I mean, I, I, I personally find it a bit... Um, I suppose I was one of those people that definitely said before the general election, Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell will be gone at the end of this process. And I was grossly wrong 
And I don't, I, I don't mind that because I think I was with some other reasonably good company in saying that. But um, where, where would you, where would you put, where would you put Great Britain? Jeremy Corbyn's Great Great Britain. If he, did, if there is another general election, if there is a is, uh, Theresa May's hand is forced, where do you think that puts us in sort of five years' time under a, a Corbyn government? Well, we've survived Labour governments before. Their damage tends to be short-term and capable of rectification. Brexit is not short-term and is not easily capable of rectification. Yeah. There will be those who question whether the short-term pain justifies the uh, avoidance of the long-term disaster. I suppose some might say that the the Tory Tory governments of the past, uh, particularly under the coalition under the under George Osborne and his austerity measures, might have caused some pain. But I suppose Brexit in the long term, do you feel that all those years of austerity will pale in insignificance to the either the Brexit bill itself or the actual longevity of Brexit of leaving the European Union? Well, I think it's unrealistic to put the blame for the austerity on George Osborne. The austerity is the consequence of the overspending by each of us, by every company and by government across the Western world. Uh, there was an economic madness which led to a crash, it always does. George, uh, led uh, under David Cameron's leadership, began the process of trying to put that right. Um, we haven't begun to succeed in putting it right. No. Um, and that is the background to Brexit. Mm. Uh, there was no alternative to the austerity, and if there was, no government has found it, because they've all, since 2008, had exactly the same experiences that we have. Yeah. Um, America found uh, Donald Trump, who broadly was arguing the sort of emotional case of, that has powered Brexit. The Continentals broadly avoided the, uh, the extreme, but they all had their Le Pen and their AFD and uh, AFG in Germany and the Dutch. Um, uh, but they've, they, they have avoided the, 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 the disaster. Um, so th that was the background to the referendum. People were fed up, their living standards were frozen, and they wanted change. Any referendum would have carried the risk that the opposition would have won. Yeah. Um, but we are where we are. And now Brexit is still advancing, adding to the problems. Yeah. Interestingly enough, the Europeans have now emerged out of the recession, but not us. Yeah. And what do you put that down to? Well, the uncertainty of Brexit. Yeah. yeah. And the and companies leaving London, for example, is is this uh, something? I mean, <laughs> obviously we should be alarmed by it. But is, but is it actual? Is it alarmist? Is it? There's no sense in this. It, once once we've got a deal with, once Davis has done his job and we've got a deal, it, the businesses will come back. The pound will strengthen. Can well, you see you, that as you, a? You you tell me that, but I'm not sure why you say that. <laughs> um, 
the, because you've got no more idea than I have what sort of deal we'll get, my guess is it will be a deal less good than the one we have at the moment. Uh, the Europeans are not going to reward us for leaving Europe. No, um, no. And uh, so all I know is that last week I sat with a major international company who showed me their working plan to move people out of this country. Uh, it's not sort of hearsay. It's not somebody saying, oh, well, it'll be Slovenia's out ahead. Mm. Month by month, numbers by numbers, location by location, they could show me where their people were going and when. Yeah. Uh, the CBI, uh, in the course of the last few days, have articulated exactly the same issue, that unless there is clarity in the early part of next year, it won't be just the financial services industry, it'll be manufacturing industry and the supply lines and uh, all that goes with it that uh, take similar decisions. Hmm. Um, uh, I'm told that the, the top end of the London property market is frozen. Uh, now, people will say, good, that'll bring down prices, but the reason it's frozen is because the footloose managers of the international world are not buying houses uh, because they're not certain about what should happen. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, Mark Carney, I suppose, along with a whole host of other people uh, picked out by the Daily Mail, uh, sort of almost seen as enemies of the state here, head of the Bank of England when I was sort of 20 years old. Obviously, I was slightly more interested in rock and roll and uh, the nightlife, but certainly you wouldn't pick out Mark Carney as sort of a rock and roll, sort of like, you know, almost like the um, anti-Brexit figure or pro-democratic figure. Now he's seen as this, just because he's pe speaking plain sense. He's well, he, he has the onerous responsibility of being governor of the Bank of England, and he is telling the truth as he sees it. Now, you could put someone in there, who would tell the truth as they see it, it may be different. Yeah. But then you would have to see what the consequences were for the credibility of the economy, for the ratings of the international assessment markets, um, on interest rate policy. Um, I believe that Mr. Carney is a straight guy telling it as he believes it to be. Yeah. And how but, So if you are a Brexiteer, of course, you have to then turn the sort of the fire on him yeah. uh, with any weapon that you feel to be necessary. Uh, if you ask me about the sort of people who do that and the arguments they use, uh, I, I'd rather not produce the language that I think justifies the occasion. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I wouldn't ask you to either, don't worry. But. Um I suppose after the um, immediate aftermath of the first Tory conference, party conference, uh, Amber Rudd was certainly um, vilified for her uh, anti-business, anti-immigrant sort of stance, uh, you know, and uh, citizens of nowhere, Theresa May. And people were saying that the Tory government at the time, Theresa May, didn't do, hasn't done since, really done a very good job at healing the country. How would, how would you have gone about sort of that process post-referendum, that immediate aftermath, those first few days? I, I don't think there is an answer to that question. The no. country is fundamentally divided and it is bitterly divided. It is divided geographically, uh, it is divided within families, within parties, um, uh, within age groups. 
uh, and I don't know of a way that you could solve that that fissure. Yeah. Um, in the end, it will require a change of policy, mm. but that will in itself be controversial. Yeah. Is it, is it about brave government? Is it about brave leadership? And well, to me, it's all about leadership. Yeah. But uh, I. I do not understand how Theresa May as Prime Minister can have made the speech she did in April of 2016 uh, and then said, say Brexit is Brexit. I just don't know how you personally do that. Yeah. But, but anyway, that's for her to decide. May I mean, off the top of my head, those, the, the two um, people involved in her, her unit after the general election who were sacked, Timothy, I, I'm useless with names, I can never remember their names, but... Perhaps it was just her circle was too, too tight, too small. But I, 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 my, my personal opinion would be it would involve some kind of supermarket inflation. You know, the, the prices to rise exponentially before we leave, things like that. We can actually tan, people can actually tangibly feel. But my only fear is, not, well, not fear. I don't want people to suffer, but we won't have those results. And then we won't have left the European Union. It will be too late when we leave the European Union. All these dramatic, terrible things will happen, but it will be too late. We would have left. And well, I'm not sure that um, uh, it is. The timing is quite as you say. Mm. I think that people already see the inflationary pressures of a depreciating currency. Mm. Um, uh, the, the all the surveys of which I'm aware would indicate that unemployment will rise uh, and living standards won't increase. That is the message that people will understand. Yeah. So um, the polarisation of politics, sort of, you know, not necessarily far right and centre right, right, right. Where's the centre ground conversation gone? Where's the sort of sober conversation gone of, of yesteryear? I think it's gone quiet, which is very interesting in itself. Mm -hmm. It's gone quiet because both parties are being pushed by an extreme wing. Um, and very large numbers of people who would um, not sympathise with those views are reluctant to break cover. Uh, it's the tribe, really. The, the tribe in politics, indeed in anything, is extremely powerful. Men and women see their careers at risk. Uh, they, they dislike the controversy. They, yeah. they enjoy the jobs that they're doing. They hope for preferment and, and uh, all of that. So the tribe has a huge uh, cohesive force yeah. um, and, and um, in both the Conservative and the Labour Party today, the activists who choose the members of parliament are sympathetic in the majority to the more extreme policies of the two wings of that sort. Yeah. Nick Clegg was saying in his, his recent book, How to Stop Brexit, have you, have you read it? No. No, it's quite... Pretty good read. Um, he's going to be on the show soon, so I've, pre I've got to say it's a good read. So, um, but he was suggesting that um, people should join parties and not necessarily infiltrate, but join parties 
and write to their leaders, write to their local council groups, etc., etc., uh, to 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 bring about change within. Yeah, well, to the we've top. been through all that before with the uh, 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 Roy Jenkins and his break away from the Labour Party. Yes, it didn't work, and I think it was a mistake. There's an old saying attributed to Benjamin Disraeli, damn your principles, stick to your party. Yeah. I think that um, you just open up two fronts. If you are dealing with a controversial issue, you're going to be on one side or the other of that, which is often hard enough within a party. But if you're then, in addition, disloyal to your party by sympathizing, by uh, cooperating with people from other parties, then you become a traitor as well. Yeah, well I suppose that's what <laughs> a lot of people sort of um, immediate reaction to Nick Clegg sort of saying that with his comments there were, you know, former leader of the Liberal Democrats says join Labour or Conservative yes. to, you know. Well, but it, I, I mean, I'm all for people being articulate and standing by their views and, and influencing any, any opinion forming process if they can. Uh, I just don't see in our political system the emergence of this third force. I don't see the Macron phenomenon um, in, in a general election driving su to success here. No, no, not at all, no. I know, I know that I've spoken with Paddy Ashdown a lot about this and he, he certainly feels that there needs to be a movement, not necessarily a party, but a movement that, that is born out of this to, public, to, to sway public opinion and what have you. I just, I, I think I'm slightly on, I'm with you there, I don't really know of a solution around this, to be honest. Well, uh, well uh, the solution is for public opinion to move, and the public opinion will move not by politicians lecturing them or haranguing them, but because events make it clear to the public opinion that the judgment to leave the European Union was wrong. Do you think that's what was wrong with the Remain campaign in the first place? It was sort of, it was in part sort of haranguing the public with facts and a bit of no, fear? I don't think that. I think that what was the problem with the Remain campaign is that they were fighting an uphill battle against the frustrations of the post-2008 economy. Yeah. People were fed up. And so it, the desire for change was, was built into the background um, and change meant leaving the European Union in those circumstances. Yeah. Um, if I had a criticism of the uh, campaign itself, it tried to concentrate on people's living standards. I think it should con have concentrated as much, if not more, on the extraordinary uh, success that a, a more coherent Europe has brought. And they would have talked about the, uh, the fact that we are now uh, 27 countries of a parliamentary democracy, the, the fascists have been driven out of Spain and driven out of Portugal, driven out of Greece. Colonels have gone. We have no nothing like the position that I remember of a third of France and Germany, uh, France and Italy, sorry, voting communist. Um, uh, and and we have created a, 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 a an interrelationship of dialogue that makes the concept of war in Europe almost impossible to see, whereas the preceding thousand years 
There was war after war after war. So that's one of the remarkable achievements of the European Union. It is, it is a remarkable transformation. Yeah. I think the younger generation understand that. But the younger generation also understand that the, the sort of the human instincts of tribe are being eroded under the pressures of the global world. You really have to look at the sort of big urban centres today, and it's quite apparent that there is a community of, of 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 people who regard the background of class and colour uh, as irrelevant. They, they they live together, they work together, um, they're friends, and and they can't really understand this stuff about foreigners coming here or whatever absolutely it is. yeah where where did the political fire start for you when when did you first realize you were vaguely political how did the pathway into politics begin oh well you go back to 1951 when i was going to meet friends for coffee in swansea and i saw a hoarding saying henry kirby conservative candidate for swansea west i crossed the road and said can i help why I did it, I certainly hadn't planned to do it, um, is something for which there is no record. Yeah. <laughs> was there any particular... No, why, why, why Tory, though? If there, I mean, Swansea, there must have been a, a pretty good reason to go Labour. Yes, uh, but that, that would be true in a sense, but not in my sense, because I was brought up in a relatively prosperous middle-class family. Yeah. Um, um, that there was no associations with the Labour Party, there were no trade union yeah. members or vehicles I could have any involvement in. Yeah. So um, I think there would have been a sort of assumption that I would have gravitated to the Conservative Party. Indeed, my father, who um, commanded a battalion of the Royal Engineers at the time, was the only officer in his mess to vote Conservative in 1945. Oh, really? Yeah, it's very interesting. You yeah. Know, the only officer in his mess. Yeah. And did he, did he ever tell you why? Did he ever open up no, about his we, we, politics? No, I don't remember talking to him about it, but I remember him recounting that yeah. memory. Yeah. No, I, I, get, I think I get a lot of my politics from my father. I remember, um, I remember being in the kitchen once when the uh, independent paper first ran its first colour picture. Yeah. And I can't for the life of me remember the image, but I do remember it. And it seems like decades ago now. Um, I remember being in a kitchen once listening to Neville Chamberlain announce the declaration <laughs> of war on Germany. <laughs> you beat me. You win. And can you remember the feeling at the time? Well, I was... You must have been about all of one or two. No, I was six. Six? Okay, yes, wow. Well, it was 1939. But I remember it. I can hear it. But... Uh, yeah, I can hear it now. What are the what? Can you bring back some of the emotions there at all? No, no. Is it just sort of a scratchy sound somewhere in the back, in the in back of the it head? Was as well? a, it was up on a wall, radio. Yeah. But at the age of six, I, I don't think the idea of a wall has a, such a chilling impact on you. It's it's strange. It's strange to think what our six-year-olds now are dealing with, and what world they're growing up into. Oh, I think that uh, people often ask me about uh, what I think about the young, and uh, my reply is always the same. I envy them. 
opportunities are so huge. Uh, and I think that in the main, in, if you think of health, of education, of, of stability and peace, yeah. by and large, this is a world in which, um, if you're certainly brought up in Western Europe or North America, the opportunities are probably more exciting than any other previous generation. Nice, that's not to say that there isn't some chilling, appalling examples of cruelty or terrorism or whatever it may be. But if you put that on, um, on a scale, I mean, just go into any village churchyard in this country and look at the people who died in the First World War. I mean, yeah. a generation wiped out. Yeah. Oh, and, and it wasn't just the, the men that, that were killed, it was the, 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 the women whose fiancés or husbands or just people they hadn't yet met yeah. who, who were obliterated. No, of course. Um, uh, the Second World War was horrendous enough, but in terms of human slaughter, yeah. well, by and large, I, I, I think that you could be reasonably optimistic if you live in this country today that yeah. you will not see your continent engulfed in a war. The threat of Russia now uh, and leaving the European Union, uh, where do you see the breakdown of us leaving the European Union? And the well, I, I, I don't myself subscribe to the view that Russia is a, a, a threat in the sense that they're going to send their troops no. advancing. Uh, the Russians are, are Russians. They are very calculating, far-seeing, cautious people. Yeah. And um, they can work out as clearly as you and I that there's no victory in uh, attacking NATO. It's no. just obliteration. So they may push the frontiers, but we push the frontiers in the Ukraine. Yeah. So it, they have seen the NATO alliance and the European Union remorselessly move closer and closer to their national frontiers. Is it, is it not alarming to you, or well, it certainly must be, but um, instability seems to be the, the pathway at the moment for any sort of enemy of, of the Western world or democracy, as it were. Instability created by, inadvertently created by, by the election of Donald Trump and obviously Vladimir Putin and any crisis within the Middle East, what's happening in Saudi Arabia at the moment. We are in a... I suppose you would definitely come back with me saying the world's always been unstable in, and it fluctuates. I think what is quite difficult for us to take on board is that all these instabilities, um, we went through it all. But broadly we went through it long before these other countries. Uh, if you think about Saudi Arabia, I mean, the family that runs Saudi Arabia came out of the deserts a hundred years ago, and, you know, their whole history is encapsulated in a, a blink of an eyelid compared yeah. with our period in world history. Um, but, I, you see, I take a view about Russia um, that of all the real problems that I see in the future, uh, and I take a relatively optimistic view. I'd like Russia on our side, mm -hmm. and I think Russia is more likely to be on our side. If you take particularly the soft underbelly of the Russian former Soviet republics, there's plenty of grounds there for instability, uh, bordering as they do on the Middle East. We share that anxiety. I'm someone who thinks that we should uh, 
have a very serious uh, and positive attempt to uh, reach harmony with Russia. Yeah, well, I suppose we've got really no other option, have we, really? Because we well, know we have got the, option. The, the other, the end game you is can go along with the confrontational approach. Yeah, and the sort of the slick sort of uh, um, language that so often is used. There's no winning for either of us in confrontation. I was wondering if I might um, ask a couple more questions, just one or two more. Obviously, Parliament is viewed by some as this sort of like we were talking about tribalism earlier but there was an article not so long ago I read uh, somewhere about cross-party relationships or friendships within the house and within within parliament over the years even at the sort of for example Myri Black in the SNP and Jacob Rees-Mogg are meant to be friends in um, in parliament who over the years have you um, had a a long-lasting friendship with? Well, two of my oldest friends were chairman of the Oxford University Labour Club when I was at Oxford. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we've made good friends, one sadly dead now, but we've made good friends ever since. Yeah. So I had cross-party friendships long before I got into the House of Commons. Yeah. Um, I, 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 it's not quite the same, but I have established some um, very good working relationships, with, particularly with local Labour leaders. Mm-hmm. because of my involvement in devolution and, and urban policy. I've worked very closely with Labour leaders mm-hmm. uh, and had a, what I would regard as a, a very considerable rapport. Um, indeed, I mean, perhaps the most significant honour ever given me was the freedom of the city of Liverpool. Well, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> would you like to speak a little more about the work you did there w- within Liverpool itself? Well. I, I look back on it with, with huge affection. It, the city was in a bad way. Uh, I tried to help. And if, I, if there's one thing I tried to do, it was to show that despite the bleakness of the circumstances, things could be made to work if the right people worked constructively with enough confidence. Yeah. And there weren't many of them. So I started sort of acting as a sort of clerk of works choosing sites that were undeveloped and derelict, trying to find something to put on them. And I found that I was able to play a role. And one thing led to another, and then more and more people began to take up the, the issues. And uh, so one thing led to another. And what era was this? Well, this would have started really in 79. 79, OK. Fantastic. No, it's, um, it's, a way, it's, it's good to get a broader picture, I suppose. Do you suffer from dyslexia? Yes. Oh, but, okay. But, but one doesn't want to get carried away. <laughs> no, I'm dyslexic yeah, as well, so yeah, I, I, mean, I never use it as I a... I don't think the words ever played any role in my early life. Yeah. Um, but if you look at my writing and my spelling, it is not what you call sort of uh, alpha plus. Yeah, yeah. I learned to compensate for this. Um, uh, I, I'm quite good at substituting words yeah. uh, because if I can't spell I try and think of something else to put. Yeah. I'm quite capable of writing in a way that nobody can read but that's quite deliberate because if I can't spell yeah. then I squiggle. <laughs> that sounds like my uncle does yes. and I've actually started to try and do that myself yes. a bit. Well, you know, if you, 
if it were doing deliberate, you yeah. didn't know whether it was an A or an E or whatever it is. <laughs> you, you just you make a big D L yeah. and an obvious T, and the rest is a blur. Yeah, part genius, part sort of clever. Well, I don't think it, I don't think it is laziness. Although no. there's no doubt at all that that my school reports always said had ability, doesn't try. Yeah, yeah. Until one term when I was nearly sixteen, I wanted a bike. And the prize my parents laid before me was a uh, good report, bike. <laughs> Fantastic report. <laughs> no, that's good. That's a good, uh, that's a good result. I don't think I've had... I just sort of had a little bit of sort of... Um, anim I have a lot of animosity towards my education because I think um, the teachers didn't really... They really were not on top of their game with dyslexia at that time. No, well, they didn't. I don't think they knew about it. Yeah. I, I think that teachers talked to 30 people if they could keep up they were they were encouraged because yeah. that they were the ones who were going to show how successful it was if you couldn't keep up it you know there was you were at the back of the form and you that's where you stayed and were you were you at the back of the class a lot sort of not getting it and not sort of well it, well it, 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 it it's it's you, one must be very careful with these generalizations because in the, in the my school certificate, for example, I got a hundred percent in maths in one paper and ninety-eight percent in the other. So I mean, you know, one got to remember the balance of this thing. But where my where the so there was a, but there was an incentive. I had to get through the common entrance. But where it all changed was about the age of sixteen, where I discovered history. And uh, this guy who didn't like writing, who finds reading quite difficult, wrote a 48-page 48 48-page 48 essay on Keshwaya, the boss of the Zulus. <laughs> wow! And, and, and <laughs> I became absolutely fascinated by this man. But of course, it was the teacher, a guy called Woods, who must have sparked something in me. Yeah, and got me really going. I think we have a similar understanding though, because I, I had exactly the same thing at history as well. I had a he was so fearful. We were all scared out of our wits by him, but he was absolutely inspiring. Yes, I, I wasn't frightened of him, but I was <laughs> lucky. But but why I I said we must be very careful about this because I've seen quite a lot of dyslexia in different circumstances, and. Uh, I'm always he very hesitant to, uh, for people to start using me as a role model because there's a, there's a wide spectrum that comes under the heading of, of uh, dyslexia and, and I'm right at the, the early stages. Yeah. There are people at the other end who frankly are, are, have a quite different order of problem. No, I completely agree. I, I know exactly what you mean. I think there are the tendency is, oh, you've got dyslexia, but you know, and then feel sorry. Well, for an actual fact, there are people that have extreme. I, I was in uh, remedial classes at a very young age with yeah. people that could, couldn't spell their names. Yeah, you know, and so obviously. You've got to be very careful. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and just one last question. Um, so over the years, looking back over all the, the, serious things that happen, all the terrible things, all the drama that's unfolding before your eyes, you can't believe it's happening. With time, has have any of those dramas diluted some of the, some of the to, to the point where you can almost look back and laugh at some of the things that happened that hit the front pages and what have you? I've never thought about it in those terms, but uh, time heals, there's no doubt about that. 
um, uh, it puts it into a context which is more the way other people see things than you do yourself. Self-evidently, if you're in the middle of some conflict or crisis, it looms large in your perspective. Whereas to other people, it's just another incident in their daily life. I suppose John Prescott, John Prescott, might look back at punching. Um, not, not that you've ever committed any acts of violence, but when John Prescott um, smacked that chap who threw egg in his face, I'm sure... I he... had huge sympathy with John Prescott. <laughs> me too, me too. I probably would have done the same. But um, he, look, he obviously look, can look back on that and laugh uh, a little now, perhaps, uh, in the, when he's having a, a whiskey on his own or something, yeah. if he drinks. I just wondered, the thought came to me on the train on the way up, I just wondered maybe there's a part of you that can afford now to look back on your quieter moments with a glass of whiskey and laugh at the, uh, some of the moments that have gone past. Uh, you know, this is the sort of question which I've never thought about. <laughs> Nothing occurs to me at this moment which is boring. Uh, there probably are things, but I can't think what they would be. Well, there you go, hey? What a way to end an interview. It, it did remind me ever so slightly of, of Spinal Tap, The Return, the sequel, as it were, where David St. Hubbins is on he's on stage, he's talking to the microphone, and they put a video up in the background just before they launch into a song, a duet they do with Cher, and he says to the audience, we asked Cher to be here, and she said she'd love to be with us tonight were it not for the fact she chose not to be and it's kind of how I felt about the last question I put to Michael there Michael is there any you know bit of your past that you look back now you know all the drama and all the this this the mayhem that goes on in parliament any that you can look back on and and think favorably of it and have a little bit of a bit of a laugh about it no I don't think so shut down literally microphone drop you know wow okay but i i thought the rest of it was a fantastic chat i thought that obviously the most poignant moment when we started talking about the second world war and hearing uh neville chamberlain's voice on the radio up on there up up, up in the shelf back being six years old when he, he remembered that that was for me a very poignant moment i love that you know, if, if you're a big reader, if you love, love your books, I can I can feel for me if I read about that, I would have to put the book down and go, God, geez, what's the, the meaning behind that? You know, this is this is some deep character stuff here. I, I, I just think it's very, it's a very cool thing to have a, an 84-year-old lord on the show who was so influential in his time in the in the cabinet. And, and we, we, we got him on the show. That's fantastic. It, we can listen back to this in, in the years to come and be very proud of ourselves that we uh, we got him on the show and I hope you guys got a lot from it and enjoyed it. I, I would say I'd maybe pull him up on a couple of things. Obviously, Tory governments have screwed up just as much as Labour governments and that's, t- you know, that's first past the post system that we have that allows these things to happen and nothing really to change but that's probably another podcast altogether but yeah look what are you gonna do argue with michael heseltine you're gonna argue with that i don't think so mate sit down it's heseltine heseltine time anyway thanks for listening this week i haven't prattled on about you know what and uh, all the you know stuff that i asked you to do because i think you guys are getting bored of it and quite frankly i hate doing it anyway so 
all I'll ask you to do is keep listening to the show, share it where and when you can, and yeah, have a great rest of your week. And next week, it's probably going to be panel discussion time. But yes, anyway, I'm working on a marvellous Christmas present for you guys. We've got a right old guest lined up for you, and I'm not going to tell you who it is. Ha! Have a good week. Bye! (laughs) 